Firstly, I wanted to thank you if you're listening to this because this is the first time I've ever recorded myself um, preaching. So I hope that you'll get something from this and it will come across in the way that I intended. I wanted to start today um, from the book of Galatians. Um, so I'm going to read that to you. It's Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. The word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the, the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the, the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, as we open your word, help us understand what you have to say to us. Help us recall your truths and give us your spirit, O God, so that we might know you more. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your presence, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. There are some times in my life when I felt the need to go back to the very beginning in order to remind myself of why I'm doing something. In recent weeks, I have answered a call into the ministry of God. It wasn't an easy call to answer, and for months and years, I've ignored it or I've sought other ways to fulfill the inbuilt yearning to talk about the Bible. And in response to my call, I sit at the process called discernment, in which the Church of Scotland, which is my chosen and called denomination, places me with a mentor and I spend a period of time between three and six months thinking about contemplating the future in ministry. And I'm so excited about it. And that journey has prompted me to want to share some of my writings with you. In some way it might be reflections, or in other ways it will be honing and sharpening my talent to write and preach sermons like this one. Just this week, in putting this sermon together, I tried to, pl I tried to plan my week as if I was a minister in a church, giving myself time to plan and prepare for a Sunday service. I've written a sermon, I've planned the hymns, I've written the prayers and the children's talk is well and truly in the bag. But this discernment period is more than just practice and practical stuff. It's really about looking inwardly when my life is placed in front of the Bible. It's an opportunity for me to let God in his word assess my life according to his will and in prayerful willingness respond with any changes I need to make. So with that in mind, I wanted to start writing a series of sermons that will expound on one of my favourite letters from the Apostle Paul, and it's the letter to the Galatians. I hope to extract serious biblical lessons from this book over the next three months, because the general theme for the letter is saving grace, and by all accounts, grace is intended to weave its way through the Christian's life inevitably. So here we are. Welcome to Galatia. I want to introduce you to Galatia because to get fully understanding of Paul's writing, we need to first understand who he's writing to. Now, the letter was written around 
AD 49, and it's addressed to a collective group of churches in the area we now know as Turkey, or actually Central Turkey. At the time, though, it was the Roman province of Galatia, and the area was infamous for its nature worship, or its worship of natural gods, like tree gods, stone gods, sun gods, and so on. And that's ingrained from a Celtic past. And in recent times, many Jews had settled in the area. The Galatians had some general and significant traits in which Paul would address later on in this letter, and he addresses them frequently throughout. In summary, the Galatians seemed to be fickle. Their minds were easily changed. They were easily divided over disputes. They were also curious. They loved new and interesting things. And actually, with the arrival of the gospel, the Galatians seemed to be, if you look at historical evidence, wildly open initially to the ideas. They were also impetuous, not really giving much thought to their actions or decisions. And you'll see that later on as we go through the book. We know from Acts 13 and 14 and then Acts 18, that Paul visited Galatia on both his first missionary journey and his third. What was significant about his second journey, though, is that he was prevented from preaching in Galatia by the Holy Spirit. So welcome to Galatia. I would invite you to, if you're listening this evening, to have your Bibles open at Galatians chapter 1. I want to look at these five first verses of Galatians and when you read them you won't be able to help but think that something significant is at stake here and it actually is. Paul is writing with volume. You can't think oh this is just a nice piece of religious text or this is a nice memory verse for the day. There's just something much more significant about this. The importance with which he writes compels us to focus in on the central truth of what being a Christian is all about. And actually, in general, the central truth of the Christian faith as a whole. Now, one of my favourite preachers is John Piper, and he writes about this. If we, as a people, can make these truths and this vigour that Paul has a part of our thinking and are willing, the bones of our faith will be strong and not brittle, and the emotional force of our life in Christ will not be lukewarm, but ardent and intense and undivided. When we look at these verses, I want to point out two important elements. We're going to look at what this reveals about Paul, and examine what more we learn about him, and how it applies to us. Then we're going to learn or relearn the core principle of your faith in Jesus, the sacrificial death, and how it applies to us. So let's look at verse 1 and 2, first of all. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Paul is dealing with people in Galatia, who we've already identified as attempting to undermine Paul's authority. And you can see this in some of the verses I mentioned in Acts. They were harping on about Paul and how he was the last to turn to Christ. Some Jews there 
might have been saying that they'd already heard him preach and that he'd came after them and therefore somehow he was beneath them. They pushed and pushed Paul's history back into his face, his history of persecuting God's people and used that to undermine him and draw his authority and doctrine into question. But here he is, Paul the Apostle, stating the office he represents. You see, Paul, in other words, is saying that he's a representative sent by someone. That's what it means to be an apostle. And he loses no time to remind the Galatians of that fact. And actually, he goes further than that. He tells them that he's not only an apostle sent not by men or by man, to look at it a different way, he's telling me set apart. He's not from the same cloth as some of the people you're listening to, my dear Galatia. Paul's whole introduction to this letter relies on assuring his reader that he is from God. Now, if you know me at all, you'll have known my history in door-to-door campaigning. I wonder if you've done that or if you've been sent to talk to someone on behalf of someone else. Maybe you work for one of those pop-up shops in town centres selling you Sky Television or digital phones or you work at convincing people to donate to a charity in the centre of Glasgow. When you talk to them, you don't really know their name. You just think about who put them there, what company they represent. And that's the same kind of thing Paul's employing here. And he pretty much, if you look at the rest of his letters, always introduces himself as an apostle. But this is the only letter in which he uses the phrase, not from men or from man, directly. Now he will use variations of that and you'll see that as we go on. You can tell he's asserting the facts surrounding who sent him. He's basically saying, saying to them, my call may seem inferior to you, but I am telling you of the one who sent me. Unlike those who come to you, those who are from men who seek to change and pervert the gospel, I come from Jesus. So when Paul speaks of men or by men, he generally means those who haven't come from God, but also those who don't come from either men or God, and they go about saying and doing as they wish. If you think about it, it's a stark reminder of how we should actually be thinking about ourselves in all matters of what we should remind ourselves of when we're undermined or when we're worried or threatened or afraid, that you are set apart, that you are from God. What's amazing though is actually, can you imagine that you have been born again of God? You are his sons and his daughters, every one of you, and you will spend eternity in his company. Of course you can stand by that phrase. Of course you can remind yourself who sent you into this world. Of course you can take power from the fact that when you're God's, nothing else matters. Amen to that. Amen to that. I think that that, that feeling of confident obedience to God is the most awesome feeling in the world. And it's an intrinsic feeling to the Christian. Oswald Chambers puts it so eloquently when he writes, The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. 
Paul goes on further reinforcing who he is later on in the verse by stating who he's obedient to and calling them by name. God the Father and Jesus Christ, as blunt and as simple as that. What I love most about these verses is not just how Paul vibrantly and confidently states his commission as an apostle, though that is a brilliant confidence to have in your faith. I love the part when he says, and all the brothers with me. There's something for me in there. I'm going into ministry with my brothers and sisters. I'm not doing this on my own. Friends, if you're listening, whatever task we take on, whatever message we have to give, whatever threats we face, I'm thinking just now of that 250 million figure Christians persecuted right now and they stand in the face of danger and they say, and all my brothers with me. God is good, friends. God is good. Associating with your church is an act of worship. And Paul loves to associate himself with other Christian service. Not because he thought this justified him, but because he never wanted to ride the high horse or be on a pedestal. And all the brothers with me, he's saying. He frequently, in many of his letters, mentions other followers Christ who were with him. Take Timothy, Timothy or Silvanus, who were actually far less influential than he was. But that's Paul's ministry of humility. That's Paul's humility in action. So here we are, we've seen Paul state his commission. He's addressing some of the doubters and some of the people who refuse to acknowledge his teachings. He addresses them head on with the full weight of the one who sent him and he does it with such humble and honouring confidence. <clears throat> I want to turn to our focus on verses 3 to 5. I'd like you to notice that Paul opens verse 3 with his benediction, as he almost does in all of his writings. However, I want you to know how quite deliberately he regularly places grace before peace. And in particular, this letter, that was so much more relevant. Paul knew what he was doing there. He knew that before the Galatians could be at peace with themselves, they would need to understand the concept of grace. After all, they were convinced that salvation was received through works. So in fact, starting your letter with grace was the perfect way to begin. And to reinforce that like a bolt out of the blue, the next verse hits you. That's its literary purpose. There you are in all its nakedness, the blunt truth of the doctrine of atonement. Now to clarify the doctrine briefly, it's really about the assertion that our Lord came to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins so that we can have eternity with Christ. But it's really Isaiah 53. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and the scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of all to fall on him. It's the same as when John the Baptist sees Jesus in John 1, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or John 3, 16, the most, one of the most famous 
biblical verses you'll probably ever read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. At the time of Paul's writing, this is an established and considerable doctrine of Christianity with a theological weight that the Galatian church really needed to be reminded of. The Galatians, as I said earlier, were bogged down with Judaizing and legalizing the gospel. They preached a theology of works over grace, that you had to do things or act in certain ways, that somehow grace was a bargaining tip between you and God. In other words, you got grace the more hours you put in. Friends, I know there will be people listening to me that think that as well. That's why in writing not just to the Galatians here, Paul is writing directly to us, to you and me, and to the churches in Scotland right now. In a lot of ways, it's a message we all need to hear again and again. Jesus died for you. That's the point. That's why you go to church. That's why you, you sing hymns. That's why you can pray. That's why you and me, we can stand in the front of a holy God and not perish. It's all because of Jesus. Remember, this is AD 49. The crucifixion was recent. The holy blood that was spilt was still fresh. It was still in the news. It was cold, hard facts. Martin Luther comments that the substitutionary character of Christ dead is always to be noticed because Christ never gave himself for our righteousness but he gave himself for our sins as the only way to save us. Is this the gospel you're hearing in your church? Is this the gospel that in the book, of your, that in the book you're reading comes through? Or is this in the sermons that you're listening to Sunday by Sunday? Friends, right now, as we speak, somewhere in the world, that is not the gospel being taught. There are men and women out there who aim to teach us a very different gospel. Even those, I'm afraid, that we might call brothers and sisters. So where are you right now? You might be sitting there thinking, you know the gospel, you've heard it before. In fact, you may be sitting there and have never been to church since you were a child and you remember these messages in Sunday school. But Paul is challenging you and he's challenging me so much in just five verses of this book to remind you of why you're a Christian and more importantly, why it's possible that you can be a Christian. Don't let that slip. Don't let it fog over. As we move into this book more and more, I hope we can look at it afresh with Paul's reminder very, very close in our minds. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Christ is that he came to die for us. And as we spend more and more time in Galatia, you'll see how important it was for them to know that truth too. The only basis on which God can forgive us is the tremendous tragedy of the cross of Christ, writes Oswald Chambers. He goes on to say, to base our forgiveness on any other ground is unconscious blasphemy. The only ground on which God can forgive our sin and reinstate us to his favour is through the cross of Christ. 
There is no other way. Forgiveness, which is so easy for us to accept, costs the agony at Calvary. We should never take the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification in simple faith, and then forget the, enorm the enormous cost to God that made all of this ours. Amen to Jesus and God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.